God Almighty, Lord of all creation, Jesus, Son of God, firstborn among the dead, faithful witness, Alpha and Omega, Holy Spirit, the sanctifier, the comforter, the one who hovered over the waters in the beginning and is alive and at work in each of us now. We take our rightful place underneath you, submitted to you, our God. There is no one like you. And we are your people, your church. This is not my church. This is not our church. This is first your church. And you get to direct how we live and the ways that we go. And I say that not only soberly, but joyfully. Because whenever you are in charge, God, things happen that can only be by your power. And transformation begins to happen that none of us could conjure up in and of ourselves. So we humble ourselves before you as your people, God, and ask that you would do something in us that only you can do. That you would place your very heart within us and give us your vision for what you want to do. And then teach us to trust you and believe that it's possible. So thank you, God, for what you are doing in us. And if there's anybody in here, God, today who's feel like they're, they're, they're facing an impossible challenge, maybe that's an addiction that they don't feel like they'll ever get over. Maybe they're in a dark period that they just haven't seen light in a while. Maybe God, they're, they're struggling with worry that seems all-consuming at times. Lord, I pray for the light of truth to, to peer into their hearts and their minds, giving them faith and trust to believe that you are able. Restore hope to the hopeless. Speak grace to those wrapped in shame. Love to those who feel unlovable or unworthy. May your presence come alongside the lonely. And thank you, God, thank you, God, that it doesn't depend on our power, but that we get to rest in you, the Almighty. In your holy name we pray, amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Whoo! Isn't it amazing, those, saint, those classics? Those songs that just stood as the test of time, how they just sink into our hearts, right? Man, thank you, worship team. Um, and it's great to be back with you guys today. Uh, last week we were uh, down in Tennessee visiting family, um, and uh, it is great to be back with our church family today. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, you guys get re ready to get back in our series, Work as Worship? Uh, we, are, we are in week three of four, um, where we're seeking to understand God's good design for our work and how work and faith are meant to be connected, right? Our work is meant to be expression of our worship. And we talked about two weeks ago how for various reasons this is not often how we think of it. 
We don't often put work and worship in the same sentence. We think of our work life over here that happens, you know, for, for most of us Monday through Friday. And then our worship life happens over here. But what we looked at two weeks ago, is how it showed us how script, Scripture shows us how work is a gift from God. That it is good and that we have been given purpose to do as part of God's way of working through us to impact others in this world. And then last week, Pastor Matt did a phenomenal job talking about how as those given purpose, we've also been given influence. And how do we use that influence God has given us like Jesus did in a way that, that shows, even if you're not the boss of your company, in a way that, that is able to make an impact where you work and where you live. And to start today, we're talking about a, a word called ambition. And our ambition for what we do. See, ambition is that motivational force that drives you. And sometimes I've heard Christians talk about it almost like ambition is a bad word. It's a bad word. But, but when you think about it, it's actually just the fuel for what we do. Ambition, whatever your ambition is, is what gets you out of bed in the morning. Getting ready for work, we all have our routine. Some of you, you put on steel-toed boots. Some of you put on dress shoes. Some of you sneakers. Some of you put on slippers and you just walk across your bedroom to your desk, right? But what drives you there? That's your ambition. Many of you have responsibilities. They have you headed toward a classroom or a studio or to an office or, or to another city or down to the kitchen to fix breakfast for your kids. But what propels you? Your ambition. You have goals, you answer emails, you have meetings, you work hard. What causes you to do all that? Ambition. You got it. Hopefully you have it by now. <laughs> see, <laughs> what, see, what it's, the, we, we can talk about the what of what we do all day, but ambition gets at the why. The what makes up our routines. The what is on our calendars and on our task list. But the why, our ambition, is the force behind our work. Do you know why you do what you do? And unless you're going through a big change in life, it's easy to just get caught in the same old routines and never ask the why. When we meet people, their first question to us is, what do you do? Not why do you do what you do? So unless we practice self-awareness, and I mean, who has time for that, right? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But unless we practice that, the why isn't always obvious. And some of us, our initial answer to the why may be, well, I want to keep my job. I want to make money for my company. I want to provide for my family. Yes, that's true. But I want to drill deeper than that. Deeper to the really the core of our ambitions. What drives us? And as we'll learn from Jesus today, is that if we keep drilling down to the core of our ambitions, they're rooted in one of two places. Can't be both. It's one of two. What we do can either come from an ambition to serve ourselves or an ambition to serve our God. Two people can do the same exact job but with two different opposite ambitions. And if you're like me, you often, you may even feel the ambition to serve yourself and serve God at war within you many days. Is that fair? So, as we study Jesus' words today, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. 
And you'll see these two different ambitions that he talks about, though, have different effects on us. One ambition leads us always searching, worrying, striving in our own strength. The other leads to freedom, to dreaming, to joy, to faith, to excitement as to how God may use us. So let's read Jesus' words in Matthew 6 together. We're starting at verse 24. You guys ready? Everybody else ready? Yes. Yes. I know. I pop these questions real fast. We're not always ready to answer them out loud. Okay. Matthew 6, 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than, everybody say more than, than. food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed, was, I'm sorry, was not dressed like one of these. And if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after the, all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But seek first, everybody say seek first. seek first, his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. God, I pray that you would allow our hearts and our minds to root themselves deeply in this words from you. And that as we root ourselves like a plant in good soil, God, that we begin to grow, not only individually, but together as a church. And then what sprouts out of that will just be, just be fresh vision and pictures of the ways that you want to use us and work through us, even in our work. So Lord, thank you for the dreams that you're already building, for the ways your spirit is already speaking. In your holy name, amen. So Jesus' words here come right out of what's famously known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most popular passages in Scripture. So I've, it's one of those places that I've turned to bunches of times, and I, no doubt you guys have too. This is very familiar. In fact, anytime I'm tempted to worry, this is one of those go-to passages for me that I'll come back and remind myself. But as I've dug into it this week, I've realized that, yes, this passage does speak to worry. But Jesus is speaking to more than just that. If you were to pick out a verse from what he just said, that I would say would be the, the, the verse you highlight if you highlight one. What is Jesus' key emphasis here? I would say it would be Matthew 6, 33. Seek first his, meaning God's kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first refers to our primary ambition for life. What fuels what you do. And then I realized that and Jesus isn't just telling us to not worry about food, clothes, or other needs. But he's telling us to set our ambitions higher on something even greater than these things. And that our problem is not that 
that we have ambition, but that our ambition is too small. This gets me, man. So when he says to seek, let me show you what I mean. To seek is to ambitiously go after something. All right, so, so we see that like, ambition is not bad. It's who God is. From the very beginning of time, with holy ambition, God sought to form the heavens and the earth and filled it with his glory and his goodness. And that's an ambitious vision that gets as big as it gets, right? And then God created man and woman in his image, he said, to reflect him. And then he made his glorious cosmic ambition ours too. When he said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. That humanity's job was to be the governors of God's world under him. Why? So that we too might be part of filling the earth with his glory and his goodness. That united with God in love, his global cosmic ambition is ours, ours is his. Thus Psalm 108.5 declares to God, let your glory be all over the earth. We just sang that a moment ago, didn't we? So now, Thinking back to that moment in Genesis 3 when that little serpent slithered into the garden, I realized it wasn't to create ambition in us. God had already given us that. But he came to shrink our ambition from God's kingdom to our little one. And then after slandering God's character, the serpent hissed. He says, if you ate of the forbidden fruit, then you will be like God, a.k.a. be your own God. Instead of serving God, why don't you serve yourself? Instead of seeking for to build his kingdom and spreading his rule across the earth, build your own. You guys see it now? So so wait, like the serpent really thought he could get humanity to to go from such a cosmic grand ambition that we had to, to this tiny little one of serving our own world life? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And how did, how did he do it? Well, he used, he used and he uses three lies together to turn our ambition inward. To shrink it from the glorious cosmic God filling the earth to our own. See if you recognize them. The first, the serpent sought to convince them you cannot trust God. I mean, he told... Adam and Eve, God's holding back from you. That's how that, how that was phrased there. But for us, it may be God doesn't care about you. Or God doesn't notice you. God's too busy with real saintly people. right? Or God, God isn't even real. Whatever form it takes, the goal is you cannot trust God. Step one. Step two. Since you can't trust God, seek first your desires says, don't, doesn't it feel good when you get to do what you want to do when you want it? I mean, I feel that every night when I put my kids to bed, <laughs> right? <laughs> now it's my time, <laughs> right? Wouldn't it be nice, the serpent hissed, if you didn't have to answer to God? Imagine how it would feel if you had the power, the glory, the honor, the wealth, And step three, in order to serve yourself, he says, I tell you, look at what's around you. Look to the created thing. 
In the case of Eden, he said, if you want to serve yourself, you want to be free, here's a fruit. But Jesus pointed out what we just read. For many of us, it's, it's, it's money. The gold coins, dirty green paper, that will get you free from your worries. That will meet your desires. Or he adds later, it could be other material things. Food, clothes, any created thing that we can see, that will be the avenue that will ultimately meet your desires and set you free. And really, you could add anything here. That if our primary ambition is to serve ourselves, we will do so chasing position or fame, people's respect or praise, health, toned abs, someone to love us, something to comfort us. The created thing is just the means. The ambition is to serve ourselves. Thus, Paul said, Romans 1, we end up exchanging the glory of the immortal God for man-made images, created things, earthly, our ambition has shrunk. You guys see that? And when that happens, the capacity of our self-made gods can't keep up with our need. And this is the trap. That if our primary ambition is to seek first our desires, and we do that through food or clothes, people's praise, respect, position, or fame, how does that go? I don't, like, I don't think I have to say go try and figure it out because we've all tried to figure it out. It's nice at first, but eventually it's never enough. A few years ago, a famous actress, Lori Laughlin, maybe you guys remember seeing this on the news, was sentenced to jail for two months and fined a pretty, pretty hefty fine for a college admissions scandal. And I realized that her story, though, isn't just her story. This is my story. This is the story of all of us in some shape, form, or fashion. The judge told her, he said, Here you are, an admired, successful, professional actor with a long-lasting marriage, two apparently healthy, healthy, resilient children, more money than you could possibly need, a beautiful home in sunny Southern California, a fairy tale life. Yet you stand before me a convicted felon, and for what? For the inexplicable desire to grasp even more. That's not just her story, is it? That's humanity's story. Why is it never enough? And as the source of our desires continually come up short, our ambition can become addiction. That we begin to work harder and harder for one more compliment, one more promotion, one more follower, one more binge, one more... Or... As our desires keep coming up short, our ambition can simply fade. We start coasting from paycheck to paycheck. We just stop caring, really. But in the absence of trusting God, in the pursuit of living for ourselves, that is exactly the kind of soil worry needs to grow like a weed. And whether we're working hard or hardly working, if we're living for ourselves, it all depends on us. And that's quite the burden to bear. And when we can't bear that burden, there grows worry. And so if we see the evidence of worry in our lives, that could be evidence that we're trying to carry something on our own that we were never meant to carry. But that's the irony, and this is how God's enemies traps us as human beings. This is the very things we turn to for freedom from worry become the very things that cause more worry. 
Can I get an amen from somebody? Because like, like, this is true. Like that's not freedom. And knowing all of this, what does Jesus say? He says, don't worry about it. Yeah, but there's more than that. There's more than that. How do we go from, I don't know, if we realize we've been living for ourselves and our ambition is about this small, how do we go from that to discover the grand ambition again that God has for us? Well, if we've been serving ourselves and our ambition is too small, then we lack the bigger reality of who our God is. And Jesus said to them in this passage, he says, man, what, what, what are you caught up with clothes and food? <laughs> or we could add here, what, you're, you're absorbed with people's praise, your bank account, or energy prices? He says, isn't life more than, everybody say more than, all these things. He said, you were made for more. Then Jesus goes, starting start to break down that lie that we can't trust God. He says, exhibit A, look at the birds. He says, they're, they're not anxiously striving, working for food because your heavenly Father feeds them. He says, are you image bearer of God, not much more valuable than they? He says, exhibit B, the flowers. They're not anxiously striving either, yet they look far better than King Solomon did in his heyday. And if that's how God treats the flowers that come and go, he says, Will he not, here it is again, much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Or we could say, you of little trust. God has much more for us than a life of worry trying to serve ourselves. And to be clear, Jesus isn't leading us here to a work-free life, but a life without worry. Because yes, God provides for the birds, but when you look outside, you don't see God's hand directly placing the food in their little beaks, right? They work for it, and so do we. Work is good. Work is from God. And sometimes it's our work that God uses to provide for others, right? But we find the more God has for you but to find the more God has for you, Jesus asked, do you know your big God? He says, he is your heavenly father who knows your need even before you know you need it. And Jesus knows here that it's hard for us to trust in a God that we can't see or touch. So he says, I want you to look at the evidence then of God's work all around you. And he added later, a few chapters later, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. What he's saying is, you can trust him. Jesus said, you can trust him. But I know for some of us, this passage could almost feel like a setup. Because the next question that I want to ask, and maybe in your mind, okay, well, if God does know all our needs, then why are there so many people in the world with needs? If God, if, all, if God cares so much, why do so many needs in the world go unmet? That's a tough one, isn't it? And on our way to answering that question, or at least going at it, let's first recognize that Jesus 
doesn't promise in this passage a trouble-free life. He promises one without worry. Because he even said at the end of our passage, he said, each day has enough trouble of its own. But the real test of faith for us, of trust for us, is that even in the suffering and pain, do we trust that our Heavenly Father is still working for the good of those who love Him? And that's hard to believe sometimes, especially when we're hurting, isn't it? And when I've wrestled with this, and different seasons of our lives have us wrestling with it in different ways. That just because you felt good about an answer at one period doesn't mean that God doesn't lead you through another, that you're wrestling with it all over again. But as I'm doubting God's trustworthiness, I remember again that this heavenly Father also sent his beloved Son to suffer a death I deserved so that I could belong with him. And then we realize that even as Jesus says these words, The shadow of the cross looms over. Don't you think he was tempted to worry about his future? Yes. For he was human in every way that we are. Yet he was one who trusted his heavenly father always. And he knew the day would come when his father would lead him to give his life as a ransom for us. But Jesus' primary ambition was God's glory. And with that focus, he saw us, all of us, those who in many ways have just been living for ourselves and who instead of serving God have been looking for ways to try to control everything on our own. And he says, I'm going to die for them. And so he suffered and died to pay our penalty, which when we put our faith in what he has done, we may be forgiven. And so we see in this way that our Heavenly Father saw a need that we didn't even know we needed, an eternal one. That yes, we need food and clothes, but he also saw that we needed to be redeemed, saved from the penalty of sin so that we could spend eternity with him. And he loved you so much that he would send his own son to die. And if that's what he could do for you, and that's what he did for me, how much more? Will he work for our good in all things? And so we will not be able to make any sense of the hard times unless we can first look at the cross. That he was willing to go and suffer on our behalf. That even if we can't understand why, at least we know that our God sees our need even beyond what we know. And when we look at his grandeur and we look at the depth of his love and all of that comes into focus, It begins to humble us. It begins to speak peace to our worry, grace to our shame. But there is where we learn to trust. And that is where worship becomes our natural response. That not only is he all-powerful and all-knowing, but he cares for me. Yes, he cares for you. And that means he not only can be trusted, but he deserves my life, my love, my all. And as we learn to marvel at God's glory and his goodness, that then becomes our primary ambition. And that's the power that love can have on us, is it not? Remember when Shelby and I first started dating? A few months in, I was like, I love this girl. 
right? And all of a sudden, my ambition, I just wanted to hang out with her. I wanted to talk to her. And if that's how I can feel about a human being, how much more can we feel toward the, our heavenly Father of steadfast love who never fails? That when we catch a glimpse of his love for us, we just want to be near him. We just want to talk to him. We just want to be like him. And that Jesus says, so those who belong to God by faith, they become the kind of people whose primary ambition is to seek first God's kingdom, he said, and righteousness. His kingdom here refers to his rule, God's rule over every part of our lives. Our home, marriage, family, morality, money, politics, and yes, even work. And not only our lives, but it's a God, God, I want to see your rule happen spread across the earth, across my neighborhood, across my family, across my workplace. I want to see it everywhere. And his righteousness, it doesn't only talk about living in a way that pleases God, but also that we would start to crave that that, that God's righteous way would, would come into reality in our society, our church, our environment, our relationships, our families. They would all be the just and good way that God, our creator, designed it to be. And so, when God's kingdom, that is his rule, and his righteousness, that is his good way, become our primary ambition, that's when we can begin to pray and dream of how God would use our work to serve him. And this is really the goal that I wanted to get to today. Because a couple weeks ago, I brought up four different questions for us to consider as we think about our work. And as I lay these out again, um, I want you to just pick out one, okay? Pick out one to focus on this week. Whatever that might be, given your, 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 wherever you are. And again, when we say work, I'm not just, I'm talking about any responsibilities or influence you have, paid or unpaid. That can count as work. So let's look at these questions again. First, how can your work itself reflect who God is? So we have an artist here, Jen. Or we have Elizabeth Wiltshire. We have other artists in here who put all their paintings out uh, over Lent season. It seems like when I watch them create, you all of a sudden you see their love for Jesus being expressed somehow in what they create. That's seeking first. Teachers in here, I watch the way you get excited when you talk about not just downloading information into kids' heads, but you want to inspire them to actually love God, to know the truth. I've talked to repairmen or, or nurses and doctors And to see them get passionate about, hey, I get to set things right that have been broken. These are all ways, pictures, seeking first God's kingdom and his righteousness through your work. Second, as we work, who has God placed around you to serve and love? I could point to a different um, business owners in this church who told me, like I said, the people that I employ, they said, are those that I want to see, how can I mentor them? How can I pour into them? How can I help them not just fulfill a job, but become strong men or women? Another woman here told me two weeks ago that she had these powerful lunch conversations um, at her workplace with several coworkers. It wasn't necessarily planning, it just happened. And all of a sudden she got to talk to them about trauma and truth, and that, that started paving the way for her to have favor to talk about Jesus. Now, I think we do have to be wise in how and when we share our faith openly, but we also have to be bold. 
And so how can we, we realize if we have a big God, why not pray big prayers? To say, God, give me opportunities. Fill me with your spirit. Show, show me the words to say, because I'm pretty nervous. Right? That we can ultimately pray that God does big things, because he's a big God. Third, how can you work for a more righteous society or for the common good? As you design products, as you build software, as you build a business, as you mentor, how might that meet a need or open up opportunities for those who might not have it otherwise? You know, when I, when I immediately thought of this, I thought of this chain of coffee shops called Biddy and Bowes. You guys heard of that? Some of you? None? It's great. Biddy and Bowes. Uh, they, they make it part of their mission to employ, everybody they employ uh, are people with disabilities. And so they give dignity to men and women coming, you know, who normally would not receive a job otherwise. Or I was reading this week, and I, I love, if you type in like, like businesses, Christian businesses, or something like that in Google, you're going to see a lot of different things come up. I read about a, a fitness, um, a guy who owned a fitness complex, but he doesn't just want to get people healthy. He wants to build community with people who are isolated and normally living a lonely life, but use fitness as the way to do that. Or restaurants who employ men and women coming out of incarceration, or financial management firms who look to invest in ethical causes. Like these are all ways that we make a difference. Seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness with what we do. Last, how can the money and resources God provides serve God's ends? That we hold our stuff open-handedly and say, God, how would you have me use this for your ends? Now, these are just a few questions. And the point of them is to get us praying, get us dreaming. Not to keep the questions here, but to take them with you. And again, pick one even to consider and talk to God about. Because when we start living for God's kingdom and his ends, like that ambition's about as big as it gets. It's not only big in scope, but it's big in eternity. That I know we've all chased our little kingdoms and comforts, but Jesus challenges us to make God's eternal rule and his good way our primary ambition. So as followers of Jesus, we have a big God who is at work in this world. This means we can have big ambitions for about the ways that he will work through us. And at the turn of the millennium, Billy Graham even said, he said, I believe that one of the next great moves of God is going to be through believers in the workplace. I got amens the service. I was waiting for amens the first service. Like, yes, Lord. Why not? But I know that maybe that's hard for some of us to believe right now. Because while we hear it today, we know we're going to wake up tomorrow, go back to our same old routines, and the same old worries will start to come back, and we start stressing, or we want to get through our day, or the culture around us sweeps us up in its self-serving ways. Few of our work environments are going to encourage you to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Right? So what do we do? Well, here's my challenge. I said in the beginning that we all have different steps that we take to get ready for work. All right, some of you eat breakfast or maybe not. You might, hope, yeah, you definitely put on clothes, right? Ho hopefully brush your teeth. But, but my question is, what would it look like for us to take off the worries and all the burdens we're trying to carry on our own, like PJ's, and to clothe our hearts and our minds with the truth and love of God before we go to work.
that we consider, hey, if I'm going to treat my work as worship, then I'm going to prepare myself for work by worshiping before I get to work. What could that look like in your life? Could it look like just making space to listen and talk to your father before you go? Confessing your worries to him. Opening up, your, open up his word to remember who your father is. Or maybe you can get creative with it. Maybe you can find a group of people here at Trinity who work in a similar industry as you or who are in a small group with you. And you can just get a text thread going. And then you just say, hey, every morning, let's all just issue a short prayer for each other before we start the day. Why not? Or maybe you have other believers that you know in your workplace. Maybe you can get them together and say, hey, can we just pray before we get started for the day? Can we take a few minutes and pray for our day as a way of dedicating what we do to God. Then in all these ways, I mean, I'll tell you, and I'll just be honest with you guys, like every morning, not, or 90% of the mornings that I wake up, I immediately feel worry. And I, I, and I think I'm not the only one in here. Because there's something about when you wake up, it's like, oh my goodness, I got so much to do today. And I get so many things, I'm not sure if I'm gonna... And you immediately think about what you had to look forward to or what you have to dread. That's me at least. And so I've learned that before I go to work, I have to offload those things with God and put back on a trust in who he is, whatever that looks like. And we all have different ways that 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 tends to work for us. What does that look like for you? Because man, when we do, we get to chase after an ambition that's far bigger than us. It's God's eternal rule and his good way. So, let's remain seated for just a second. I want to pray, and then I want to do something else. God, thank you so much for the ways that you are at work in and through us. God, I pray for dreams to pop up in our hearts and our minds as we consider how we might seek first your kingdom and your ways and what we do. God, thank you for that you called all these people in this room with all these sorts of areas of influence and purpose and work. And God, I pray that, that you, by your Spirit, will just illuminate for them little ideas. Maybe, maybe even some of these questions will spark fresh thought in them. But that they will also learn what does it look like to prepare themselves that even as they step into work, God, to make it about you, your way, your higher ambition instead of for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.